13. Gospel of Mark chapter 13. My, my plan, I should tell you, is that we w- I plan to take three weeks to unpack this particular um, chapter. Uh, it's one of the most difficult chapters in all the Bible. Uh, I can't guarantee you that you're going to have much more clarity than what you have today going into it at the end of three weeks, but uh, with God's help, I trust we will have some grasp and be able to expose some of the misnomers and uh, misinterpretations of this text. So verses 1 to 13, uh, reading from the New American Standard. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, Behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to him, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will also be famines, and these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But you, be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings, and for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand, what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you that speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father, his child, and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. But you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you with humility in our hearts, with a keen desire to gain understanding of your word and even this particular section of scripture today. And so, Lord, we would beg of thee that you would send the Holy Spirit, that you would, as it were, give us those lenses that we might see and understand. Lord, that we would have insight into this passage. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to speak to us even this very day as we see how this passage applies even to us as it did to them in the first century. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, having had a couple of months out of the Gospel of Mark, I think it would be wise just to do some review. Um, I can't remember which uh, exact passage or how many sermons we are into the Gospel of Mark, but it's substantial. And uh, we do plan to pick up the pace some. I'm anticipating 10 more sermons to finish out uh, the gospel, but of course that's always subject to change. Um, But chapter 11 marked the decisive break, the triumphal entry of our Lord to Jerusalem. As the triumphal entry happened, that was during Passover week, Passover feast, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would come from all over 
to return to Jerusalem to observe this feast. This is the last week of our Lord's life. A large chunk of chapter 11 and 12 is given to discourses where the religious leaders try to challenge Jesus, and he exposes their hypocrisy each and every time. The most recent one, the Lord said that we are to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then that beautiful little story that we looked at last time, some time ago, of course, but the widow's might, where she demonstrates what it looks like to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, is she gave all that she had to the Lord. There was a purity in her devotion. And Jesus uses her, as it were, as a test case to show, comparing her and her poverty as a widow who had nothing, that gave a mite, the 164th of a day's wages, compared to the religious hypocrisy of the leaders. All five of those interchanges take place on Tuesday of Passion Week, and we are still on Tuesday. This is Tuesday afternoon or evening as Jesus now leaves the temple. This Tuesday would be the last day that he would be at the temple. So as we come to Mark 13, and the parallel, of course, is Matthew 24, which is very similar. There are some differences we'll, we'll highlight, and then also Luke 21. We must come with humility, we must come with setting aside preconceived notions and come begging the Lord to open our eyes to what this text says. Eschatology, the theological word for the study of last things, has divided many Christians, it's divided many churches, and so we need to be careful not to have such a strong opinion that, that we divide over it. Well-meaning Christians can get all wrapped up in every bit of news. They, they're glued to CNN to see what the newest thing in the Middle East, the newest development is, and they try to put that into Mark 13 or Matthew 24 and say, see, see, it's right here. And they've done that for millennia. And particularly in our lifetime, or at least my lifetime, I'm older than most of you, but the last 50 years this has been marked um, uh, in a much larger way whether it's the news of Syria, what's going on in Iran, uh, what's going on in the West Bank, waiting for some new temple to be built, supposedly. And, and just Google prophecy conferences, and you will see how popular this topic is. I submit to you that those that get so wrapped up in trying to put together numbers and dates and piece all the puzzle together, they neglect the weightier things of the law, and that is to take up your cross and follow Christ today. And I've seen it firsthand, and I know it is true. Consider the, some of the books. Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, kind of got the thing rolling. 1998, Harold Camping with 1994, which I personally knew people that were wrapped up into that. And they were, they were believing Jesus is coming back. Harold Harold put together all the pieces. Nobody else could, and for two millennia, but Harold did it. He's coming back. And they were extremely disappointed. And of course, he didn't learn his lesson. May 21st, 2011, Harold Camping, we had a billboard just a quarter mile away that we saw every day coming to church. And as it neared closer to May 21st, 2011, I was sure that the following Lord's Day from that day, we would all be worshiping here together. Because no man knows the day or the hour. And he's claiming to know the day or the hour. To be orthodox. Orthodox is, what's orthodontics? 
straightening out of teeth, right? To be orthodox is to have straight doctrine, okay? And a straight understanding. And this is what you must believe to be orthodox. That Jesus Christ is visibly, bodily, returning to this earth, that, he, that there will be the resurrection of the dead, and that there is the last judgment of either hell, hell or heaven. That's what you need to believe to be orthodox. Our confession of faith, the 1689 London Baptist, the last two chapters, very brief. It doesn't go on. There's not a chapter 33. And by the way, here's the mysterious code <laughs> so that you can know the times. No, our forefathers knew that it's, it's just distilled things down that that's what you must believe. The purpose of Mark 13, brethren, is not to reveal timetables or esoteric information but to promote faith and obedience today and in times of persecution as we look at the context. The true test of discipleship is not predicting the future, but faithfulness in the present. Another thing that should be by way of introduction, throughout Mark 13, there is 19 imperatives given in the second person, but you, disciples, you, people of God, there's exhortations of how to live today in light of this. It's not just indicative, here's some facts that will happen and so forth. 19 oratory imperatives. Mark cautions the disciples and the community of believers not to get wrapped up in this uh, apocalyptic fervor, but in obedience to Christ's call to take up your cross and to follow Him. Mark 8, verse 34. I'm going to unpack this as we go through it, but a few things to notice. The repeated words, these things, these things, we see several times through the first 23 verses or so. We'll talk about the abomination of desolation next week. And then there's the those days or those things, okay? So that, that's just something grammatically to look for, to have your antennas up. The fig tree illustration, the coming of the Son of Man, all these things will be wedded together but for our purposes, we're looking at the first 13 verses. Matthew Henry said this, and I think it, it sums up what I would like to say. Christ will come when he pleases to show his sovereignty. And he will not let us know when to teach us our duty. Think about if, if somehow we could figure it out. Boy, we'd all be living really righteous, holy lives, wouldn't we? We'd be trying extra hard and all of that kind of stuff. The Lord doesn't want that. He wants a wholehearted devotion from you with a great anticipation that He will come someday and a belief in that and to be ready every day to meet the Lord. Do you see how that it's motivated by the Gospel and a loving of Christ and what He has done that drives us with a great anticipation? Come, Lord! You ever pray when you're having confession of sin? Lord, deliver me from this body of death. Can you ever echo with the Apostle Paul? I'm done with sin. Come, Lord Jesus. He loves to hear his people longing to see him face to face. And see him face to face, Christian, you will in his perfect timing. First of all, verses 1 and 2. There's, there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Jesus leaves the temple never to return. Look at verse 1 again. And he was going out of the temple. 
that's a picture of him physically leaving, but it's also a picture of the God's glory departing from the temple. It's a decisive break that Jesus has with this temple. Jesus had already given clear, three clear predictions that he would suffer at the hands of the Jews. Chapter 8, verse 31, 9, verse 31, and chapter 10, verse 33. He has overcome all the challenges and to his authority from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the other religious leaders. Back in chapter 11, he referred to the temple as what? A den of robbers, right? And then he gives that fig tree illustration that's withered up and it's not bearing any fruit. And that's a picture of what the temple is. Even with all of its gold, even with all of, it, all of its glory, external glory, it had become empty and lacking life, bearing no fruit whatsoever. The religious leaders were selfish, hypocrites. So just like a system of cells that has become malignant, the temple has forsaken its intended purpose and must now be destroyed. Jesus has come. Jesus would offer himself up. Now, we read that we couldn't read all of Matthew 23, but think of between Mark 12 and 13, if you inserted Matthew 23, all of those woes, we only read some of them, and then got to the ending part where we see Jesus, and this is the context before Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones all those sent to her. How oft I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers a chick under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One of the commentators um, speak of when the, the disciples in verse 1 say, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And they are completely enamored by this. And one of the commentators say, the disciples drop their jaws over the building blocks, and Jesus demisses them as stumbling blocks. Ultimately, they're stumbling blocks. So, it says that they go to the Mount of Olives in verse 3, sitting at the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. That's why we read Zechariah 14 again. Jesus is showing his absolute supreme sovereign authority as he declares destruction on that temple across the way, across the Kidron Valley, as he displays judgment on that temple. One that has authority, very similar to Zechariah 14. In fact, if you look at your outline on the back, there's a map here. And you can see the temple in the middle of the map. You can see the Garden of Gethsemane slightly northeast. But you can see the Mount of Olives over there. The Mount of Olives would be about 300 foot higher elevation than the temple. Um, separated by the Kidron Valley, they would, they would walk around, not likely down into the valley, uh, to get up to it. So it was a majestic view, as it were, from a higher elevation, looking down on all those buildings, and especially the temple. Perhaps the gold glittered in the sunset. Apparently, in the Mount of Olives, there was one place where you could see through the, the, the columns that were there and actually see one of the porticos that were there. Well, it might be helpful for us just to consider the history of God meeting with his people in buildings. First, you have the Exodus, right? In Exodus, they're commanded to build a tabernacle. 
a building that would be made, that's portable, that would be made out of animal skins and would be uh, something that when the Lord led, uh, that they would pack it up, they would move, and then they would set it back up. Then, of course, King David wants to build a house for the Lord. But because of the bloodshed and so forth, he says, your son will build a house. So Solomon sets out to build a temple. When we went through 1 Kings, we, we spent a great deal of time on this. And it was a temple that was absolutely amazing. Tons and tons of gold. That incredible prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8 uh, that is there. But the people of God hardened their hearts. They ran from God. They ran after idols. They, they, they disobeyed the Lord. And finally the Lord has had it and says, that temple's going to be wiped out. You're going to be disciplined and sent for 70 years into exile. The Babylonians will come and utterly destroy that temple. It was prophesied by Isaiah and Micah and others, Micah 3.12. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed like a field and Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. Of course, after the exile, the returning exiles came back. They saw their temple completely destroyed. They began to set out to rebuild laying the foundation stones, beginning to build, Nehemiah with the walls, and so forth. But the men that were old, in their 80s probably, looked at that new temple with sadness. It paled in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. It, it's, it's sort of like a, a castle or whatever, this, if, if you can imagine the temple, and then a shack being built or something like that, a plywood, you know, something like that. It just paled in comparison. But then Herod comes along, just before Christ, in 19 B.C., and he's called Herod the Great because of the great remodeling project that he did to the temple. Just did not spare any expense whatsoever. Expanded the borders, dumped tons of money into it. In fact, this construction project went on for 80-plus years. In AD 64, it was still going on. Now, most of the work was done 19 to 9 B.C., but it just continued, expanding the inside enclosure to 35 acres. The eastern wall rose 15 stories over the Kidron Valley. Some of these stones were just absolutely amazing inside. Some claim up to 60 feet long, 14 feet deep, 11 foot tall. These are the foundation stones, massive stones that are estimated to weigh over a million pounds. Don't ask me how they did it. I'm just telling you what I've read and studied. They have discovered some of those stones uh, nearby that are 40 feet wide. They've never found one quite as big as what some claim. But then all these columns, four rows of columns, Corinthian columns with Corinthian capitals at the top, 40 feet tall, marble overlaid with gold, jewels. It was something to behold to where just looking at it would make Hearst Castle look like a doghouse. I mean, it was something that was amazing. No wonder the disciples would say, Lord, behold, what foundation stones and what wonderful buildings. But ultimately, we know that God does not dwell in buildings made with hands. Sure, in the Old Testament system, he did have that place as a meeting place, but even in Solomon's prayer, back in Solomon's temple in, in 827 of 1 Kings, he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. 
how much less this house which I have built. Jesus again and again alluded through His earthly ministry that something greater than that temple with all of its gold, with all of its marble, with all of the jewels, something greater than the temple is here. But you need spiritual eyes to see it. In the Gospel of John, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he's speaking of what? The temple of his body. Well, at this rate, we'll be here about three hours. Let's go to verse (laughs) 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. These words of Jesus Christ were fulfilled less than 40 years after he spoke them. 39, 40 years, depending on. Not only the temple, but the entire city would be leveled, raised to the ground. I'm reminded of Malachi, where it says, The coming of the Lord to his temple and judgment for the refining and purifying of his people. The context of that destruction in A.D. 70 is is something utterly amazing. The destruction of the temple was God's sovereign judgment upon the people that had grown into hypocrisy, going after idols, just having this uh, shadow religion, so to speak. And the wickedness and the rebelliousness of the people had risen to the nostrils of Almighty God. And he says, enough, enough. I'm destroying it all. Let me just give a a very brief history of what happened between Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father in A.D. 70. The tension with Rome was already present during his lifetime, of course, but around A.D. 40, when the emperor Caligula ordered that a statue be erected of him in the temple, things began to really get tight and the tension increased. Of course, the Jews refused that. They would not allow that. So there was rumors of wars for the next 25 years. You know, there was constant fear. But when the Roman armies did begin to invade in A.D. 66, they began in the areas of Galilee. We've looked at that with maps and so forth. So they began from the outside working in towards Jerusalem. In the middle of this time, there's so much chaos going on, the Jewish people have their own civil war, and so does Rome. So they kind of put the, this, you know, the war between Rome and Jerusalem on pause, and they go and do that. So much to where Nero, the great persecutor, commits suicide during the civil war of Rome. Well, when the battle was resumed, the uh, uh, Vespasian was called to Rome uh, to take Nero's place as emperor and his son Titus became the general of the army, the one that would be responsible for the battle. Now, the intensity of this is not really recorded for us. There are historians, Josephus, for example, the great historian. Again, it's not infallible, but an eyewitness account that wrote over 200 pages of this war. So we can glean little bits and pieces of, and kind of get a little bit of a picture of what it may have been like. This is from uh, his book, Books of War 2 and 5. He says this, Neither did any city suffer such miseries, nor did any age breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this one from the beginning of the world. Now, towards the end of this, for five months, Jerusalem was completely sieged. There was famine. There was being, those trying to escape would be hacked by the sword or to be crucified. 
Again, quoting Josephus, children pulled the very morsels their fathers were eating out of their mouths. There's an example of a woman who finally in desperation boils her son and eats half of it and then hides half of it. But the problem is, is the rest in the city smelt it and they came and there was this, this, you know, this bloodshed over the half of infant that remained. Corpses were stacked in upper rooms and they lined the streets. The stench would be incredible. When people left the city looking for food, they were captured. They were either slaughtered with the sword or towards the end, they were crucified. There's accounts of outside of the city walls, upwards of 500 people being crucified per day. Okay, You can just imagine this sight as you look out beyond the walls. What a warning to any who would have such hunger that they would risk escaping to find food. And finally the order came. Raise the city. That is, level the city. Fires erupted. The temple's burning. Houses are burning. There's this, this absolute, complete destruction, probably something similar to Sodom and Gomorrah as far as the, the magnitude of the smoke and all of that. And they go in and they slaughter the inhabitants. And it's an amazing thing. It's estimated that 1.1 million Jews either died by the sword, crucifixion, or famine. Another 100,000 were exported to Rome as slaves. God allowed all this so that we might know that we are not to worship in a building, a temple, and offer sacrifices, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled that. We looked a few weeks ago about the importance of worship and the woman at the well. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship, but those who will worship in any place in spirit and in truth. No more the spilling of blood, the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood he paid for our sins once and for all. Hebrews 10. So the prediction of the temple destroyed, fulfilled in A.D. 70. Let's continue on. Our second point, expect deceptive religious impostures. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again. As he was sitting in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of all these things, when all these things are going to be fulfilled. And Jesus began to say, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. The disciples want to know when this destruction will occur. Of course, they're on the Mount of Olives, hence that the term, the Olivet Discourse, I've already mentioned the uh, geography and so forth. But notice that which disciples come to him privately? Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. The very first that were called in chapter 1. They're there. They're questioning him. They want, tell us, tell us, your first disciples, when will these things be and what will be the signs? Elaborate, Jesus. What are you talking about? In fact, I've alluded to this as we've gone through, the disciples' questions to Jesus Jesus lead to some of the longest and you know, best discourses that we have of our Lord. Chapter 4, all of those parables, the same thing. It, it came from a question from the disciples. Chapter 7, chapter 10 as well. So they have a, a single question, but it's two parallel phrases. When and what? When will it be? What will it look like? What will be the signs of your coming? 
Now, Mark records this particular verb. It's blepo in the Greek, and uh, it has this meaning to be ready to learn about something that is needed or is hazardous to watch or to look to or to beware of. It occurs in verse 5, 9, 23, and 33. The NES translates it differently. See to it, be on your guard, take heed. That's the idea, see to it. It means to see or to perceive, but one of the definitions is to take heed. It's used figuratively like here. And again, the imperatives begin to start flowing. See to it that no one misleads you. Don't be alarmed and frightened. Be on your guard. Many will seek to deceive and mislead and to lead astray. Now, false prophets are nothing new. In the book of Deuteronomy, there is the test of a true prophet, right? Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5. What you do with false prophets, okay, is listed way back then. In Jeremiah 14, verse 14, then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and deception of their own minds. Early in the book of Acts, you see examples of this. Acts 5 and verse 37. Judas of Galilee rose up in those days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. The apostle Paul himself, as he's speaking to the Ephesian elders after speaking, spending three years with them, says, be on guard yourselves. Shepherd the flock of God. And he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, history tells us that things did quiet down some after A.D. 70, but think about it. Even in our day, I mean, there's just cult after cult after cult. Those that are rising up in the name of Jesus, you know, the David Koresh's, the Jim Jones, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian scientists, all of these things founded by a deceiver that wants to deceive. Other religious traditions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, New Ageism, the New Atheism, and all the rest. Well, verses 7 and 8, he tells us not to allow natural, nat- natural disasters or the latest news to frighten. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. As we speak right now, the largest storm of 2013 is on the other side of the world, hitting Hong Kong. It may have already passed. I didn't check the news this morning. It was heading right for Hong Kong late last night, and then China. It already hit Taiwan. Estimated 1,100 milliliters of water. I just go, 1,000, okay, that's one meter. That's three feet of water, okay? 600 miles across. This is a this is a huge storm. It's, it would be a Category 5 plus in hurricane terms. It's a typhoon, a soggy. These things happen. The Lord sovereignly sends these things. But even when those happen, he says here, it's merely the beginning of birth pangs. In the last 2,000 years, just considering war, there's been 300 major wars around the world. In fact, Hughes, in his commentary, quotes a historian, Will 
Durant that says, war is one of the constants in history and has not diminished. In the last 3,400 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Isn't that amazing? What is that? Six, seven percent of the years that passed, there's been no war. War is a constant. National turmoil, earthquakes, famines. But Jesus says, look in verse 7, the end, but that is not yet the end. Remember, he's ask, asking the question, when? When will these things be? Well, even when you see all this, when you hear about all this, this is not yet the end. And then he uses those illustration of birth pains, labor, imagery that even comes from the Old Testament, Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 4.31, where it says, But I heard a cry of a woman in labor, the anguish of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, Ah, woe is me, for I faint before my murderers. For the disciples, and all reading this gospel, the original uh, hearers, and, and, and even to us, the call is to be vigilant and to not be led astray by current wars, natural disasters, or anything else. A sovereign God is in control of all things. In Acts 11, verse 28, in regards to famine and earthquakes, already in Acts 11, early in church history, one of them named Abacus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. So there was already famines. Acts 16, 26, the account of the Philippian jailer. What happens? An earthquake shakes with such vehemency that the foundation of the prison shake and the prison doors fly wide open. Earthquakes were actually extremely common between 60 and 70 A.D., we talked about when we were in Colossians a couple weeks ago that uh, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, the triad of cities there in Asia Minor, were all leveled by one earthquake. There's other accounts in AD 61, 63, just huge areas leveled. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson, the great Scottish commentator, has to say about this idea of labor pains. And listen very carefully. Labor pains certainly indicate that a birth is about to take place. But who knows how long the woman's labor may be? The birth pains indicate that a childbirth has begun. They do not serve as a prophecy of the exact moment of delivery. This beginning of birth pains does not tell us whether the end will be tomorrow or next century. Events may be drawn out by God in his patience, 2 Peter 3.9, or they may be accelerated rapidly. We must not allow ourselves to be led to panic by a wrong diagnosis of the contractions of the universe. Ferguson is giving a warning to those that would spend their lives trying to evaluate the contractions of the universe, the things that are happening. I know for my own wife, there's different amounts Chris was very stubborn with coming out. She's 20 plus hours of labor. The boys, not so much in the single digits, but so there's different timings. You can't just say the beginning of birth pains and you can predict the exact moment. Jesus says these are merely the beginning of birth pains. So we've 
considered the temple being destroyed, not being deceived by teachers and uh, natural events and wars and all of that. And the last point today is expect opposition to the gospel, verses 9 to 13, uh, more briefly, because this theme will carry through into next week's text. Look at what it says in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Courts, synagogues, governors, kings, as a testimony to them. Religious, civil authorities, Jews and Gentiles, it's going to come from all directions, from any group. You will be persecuted. And throughout the book of Acts, Acts 12.1, Acts 23, Acts 25, standing before religious authorities. Now in these five verses, and I'm not going to reread them all, but verses 9 to 13, Jesus is saying primarily three things. It's connected by the same verb, paradidomai, which means to hand over or to deliver over. It's the language that's used of Jesus Christ being handed over, right? And so it, it's connected with that. It's translated, unfortunately, differently in each three of these. But um, in the NAS, the ESV actually has deliver over each time. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the court. Number one. When they arrest you, verse 11, and hand you over. That's the idea, to deliver you over. Do not worry beforehand. And then verse 12. Brother will betray brother. That is, hand over brother. Deliver over brother. So it's connected by the repetition of those, uh, the, the thrice times that that verb occurs. Deliver to authorities. When they hand you over, you'll have help from the Spirit, and there will be division and betrayal even among family. Now look in verse 9. When they deliver you over, you will be flogged in the synagogue. You know what flogging is? Flogging is something that I hope nobody ever has to go through, but many did. It, it was a form of actual torture. And the, the Jews had a law that if you gave 40 lashes and, and the victim died, you could be tried for manslaughter. So they did 40 minus 1, 39, just to be careful that they would never exceed 40. It became a form of Roman torture. And, and, and it would be a whip with leather, leather straps on it, with chips of bone and glass and sometimes iron balls at the end so that the balls would bruise your body as it was licked over your body and the bone and the glass would rip the flesh down into the muscle. It was an incredible form of torture. It's something that our Lord went through. Some historians say that there would be 13 on the breast and then you would be turned around and the other 26 would be on the back. That's why when our Lord, when they put on the purple road, when the soldiers were mocking him, after he had been filleted open with blood everywhere, and the blood began to coagulate and stick to the cloth, when they ripped it back off, can you imagine that kind of pain? And what our Lord is saying here is that we will experience we, this type of persecution, this type of intensity. And as we pray for the persecuted church here at Grace Bible Church, often, there's example after example after example of Christians being cruelly treated. But this persecution, I mean, way back in Acts 7, we have the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then in Acts 12 with James. And then he, notice how it, verse 10 sometimes at first doesn't seem like it fits, and the gospel must be first preached to all the nations. Well, I submit to you that it's simply here that it, when he says that it will be a testimony to them, 
that how Christians bear up under persecution is, serves as an advancement for the gospel. Now, some get hung up with this, and in Matthew's account it says the, the gospel must be preached to the whole world, and so therefore this can't refer to A.D. 70 because they're still unreached people groups and so forth. The word that's used here, and by the way that could be explained too, is ethnos, which means people group. And when he says all nations, it's all people groups in, in the known world around that time. Remember we considered this in Colossians 1.6, where Paul says, and this is in A.D. 62, <laughs> The gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Earlier, in Romans 1, probably the late 50s, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So this terminology doesn't necessarily mean every single continent, every single people group. And we see this persecution happening today. Street pe preachers being arrested this last week in Scotland, in England, in Canada. Preachers having their mouths muzzled because they're not able to speak certain things. Uh, they, they have to censor what the Bible says. Christian websites being told what they're allowed to have and not have. Well, verses 11 to 13, briefly, Christians have an assurance when the Holy Spirit gives those words to say, and I would add to that, a peace in the midst of persecution. That's an assurance that we are indeed the children of God. And look what he says in verse 11. When they arrest you, okay, when they, when they, when, when, when they, when they seize you and hand you over or deliver you up, do not worry beforehand what you are to say. It will be given to you by the Holy Spirit. Don't be anxious when that day of trial comes. In fact, there's other promises like this to Moses as he's being commissioned. Uh, Exodus 4.12, Now go, I, even I, will be your mouth, and I will teach you what you are to say. Jeremiah's commissioning, 1, 11, 1 verse 9, Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Don't be anxious. Verse 12. Brother will betray brother. Father, his child. Children will rise up against their parents. Examples of this is a mild example. A young lady in Laos, 17 years old, comes to faith, begins going to church on Sundays instead of working. Their family's farmers. They work seven days a week. Finally, they prohibit her from going to church. They burn her Bible. They burn her hymnal. Another example from the Middle East. I can't remember exactly what country. Young lady becomes converted. Family completely persecutes. Has her raped by other men tries to teach her a lesson. There's some in torture that is put there. These things happen. This betrayal does happen because of the gospel. Jesus himself, back in chapter 4, it says, when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. We've got to get him. We've got to get him out of here. Listen, brethren, the Apostle Paul told Timothy in his second letter, 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, not might be persecuted, will be persecuted. Expect persecution. Paul speaks at the end of the book of Galatians, I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus Christ, the stigmata. I've got the scars to prove it. I've been through this. I've been persecuted. And right after he's boasting in the cross, it's a glorious thing. How does the health and wealth gospel fit into this message? It doesn't fit very well, does it? It's kind of like putting a, a, a square block in a round hole. It, it, it doesn't fit in the Bible. Now, does God work all things for good for those who are in Christ Jesus? Yes and amen. Sometimes He uses trials and sufferings to bring that about. Listen, that health and wealth gospel is absolutely destructive and abominable. The teachers such as Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen have and speak a false gospel. Mark it well. Joel Osteen, quoting from a sermon uh, seven or eight years ago. There's power in what you visualize, he says. Take a few moments each day and visualize the things you want in your life so that God can bring them to pass. He then tells of a story of a coach and a team Visualize victory. Now what's wrong with that mentality? Visualize the things you want. You've got a corrupted, depraved heart. You don't know what's best for you. (laughs) You need to pray, Lord, you know what's best. Bring that into my life and help me to embrace it by faith. In the Gospel of John, Chapter 15 and verse 19. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to run through these very quickly. Jesus says in 15, 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. 16:33. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, verses 14 and 15, I have given them your word. As he prays to the fathers, speaking to the disciples, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus himself is not, isn't praying that, Just zap all the true Christians out of this world of suffering. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. Just keep them from the evil one. Perseverance. Endurance. And that is our great need. Look in verse 13. Mark 13. He says here, You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now there's a sense in which, which we'll talk about later, but that we endure, but He causes us to endure, right? I mean, it is, if it's left to our own strength, we would absolutely fail. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. We have amazing protections in our country right now. 
We have relative freedom. Those are slipping. They're slipping rapidly. We know not when persecution can come. Well, in conclusion, as we study this Olivet Discourse, let us remain teachable, have humility, humility, and to ask ourselves, am I ready for the Lord Jesus Christ to come today? The events of verse 6 to 13 of our text have been the experience of the church after Jesus' ascension, the whole book of Acts leading to A.D. 70. And so all of these things are really fulfilled in, in there. But in many ways, that is experience for us and the church today. Are you waiting for some physical temple to be built? I hope you're not. <laughs> there is no temple. We are the temple of God. Christ embodies the temple. The church itself and its building stones is the temple. Ephesians 2 and verse 21, listen to the Apostle Paul, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God, the Spirit. There's a sense in which the church itself, every blood-bought sinner, is a building block in that glorious temple. We need to be concerned with taking up our cross and following Christ for today and being faithful to Him. If you're outside of Christ, you should be terrified. You will meet the one who has eyes as a flame of fire and it will, it will be in judgment. Listen to Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? You say, well, I'll wait till I see a few more signs, if you think these are signs. Then I'll get my life right. There's no second chances. It happens. It's done. Your eternal destiny is set. And you young people, especially you listen to me, this is why you must turn to Christ, why you must go to Him, why you must hate your sin and forsake it and see Christ is the sin bearer who died for sins. And embrace Him by faith. John 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, that commanding voice, it is time, and will come forth, those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. If you're outside of Christ today, I beg you, come to Him. Have serious dealings with Him. Talk to one of us elders. We would love to talk to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. and We thank You that it is clear. Uh, Lord, we pray that You would make this particular passage even more clear to us. And Lord, most of all, that we would be those that are walking in joyful obedience to you each and every day, not trying to solve mysteries and times and all of that, for we know no man knows the day or the hour. Oh Lord, spur us on to faithfulness. And Lord, give us that holy, purifying anticipation of when we, as your blood-bought people, will see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. If you'll take your Red Trinity hymnal now and turn to number 547, we will stand and sing together with harps and vials. Would you stand with me as we sing?